You are listening to the Living Way Church podcast. For more information about Living Way Church, go to livingwaychurch.cc. That is the seventh Sunday after Easter, and it is the it's the holiday of Pentecost. It's actual Christian holiday, and uh, not uh, many Protestant denominations still celebrate it. But it is the day that that. Uh, uh, it commemorates what happened in Acts chapter 2 where 120 people were uh, praying and in one accord they were in unity and just waiting on, on what God was going to do next exactly as Jesus told them to go and wait for power. And on that moment, uh, on that day, on the day of Pentecost, which was a holiday, a Jewish holiday called Pentecost, which commemorates the day that God gave the word of God to Israel, on that day of Pentecost, that holiday... God gave the Holy Spirit to the church, and on that day, uh, Peter got up and he preached the gospel, and 3,000 people became followers of Christ that day, and that day is considered the launch or the beginning of the church, actually, of the church of God, of Jesus Christ. So um, Pentecost is a celebration of the giving of the Holy Spirit and the beginning of the church. And so it is an actual Christian holiday and very apropos because today we're going to be talking about some of the events that happened on that day of Pentecost. We have been in a series on 1 Corinthians, which uh, I am loving and I hope you are too. It's a letter written by Paul to a church he had planted. He hadn't been there in about five years and they were starting to go a little nutty. And so the entire book of 1 Corinthians is a letter to the Corinthians to correct their craziness. And they were constantly, constantly twisting scripture, doing things odd and strange and weird. In fact, in 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen, Paul writes to them, he says, in the following directive, directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings or your services, when you gather together, uh, they do more harm than good. How powerful and convicting is that? He says, man, I have nothing good to say about your services when you get together. The first part of 1 Corinthians is dealing with how we react to each other and to the world. And in our personal life, our, our, our purity, dealing with... Uh, purity in our life and dealing with those around us and those. And now he starts to, in chapter 11, he starts to talk about their issues when they get together as a church. And so for the next several chapters, he's really laying on pretty heavy. In chapter 11, he addresses a lot of issues dealing with selfishness, segregation. Uh, they were uh, getting slush and, and uh, getting drunk at church, believe it or not. They were dishonoring God and, and the resurrection and the cross. And then he gets to chapter eight, uh, chapter 12, the next chapter, and he's still in this corrective mode. And this is important to know that when Paul starts talking about the gifts of the Spirit in chapters 12, 13, and 14, we can't isolate them and say all of a sudden he's being nice and encouraging and he likes what's happening. No, it's a continuation of chapter 11 where he says, in your services, when you gather together, I have nothing good to say. And he says in verse 1 of chapter 12, he says, now about gifts of the Spirit, the word gifts is not in the original. He's saying now about the supernatural, now about the spiritual things, he says, brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be uninformed. Now, following his train of thought, what he's saying is, I don't want you to be ignorant anymore. I don't want you to be uninformed about this issue of the supernatural. So then he begins to talk about spiritual gifts. And that's kind of what we were talking about the last couple of weeks. We're in this section of 1 Corinthians called Gifted. And so we're spending several weeks on just these three chapters because there's so much there. Today is actually going to be uh, the longest section of scripture that I have ever taught on in our church. We're going to look at an entire chapter, a long chapter today because it has to be read together. See, a lot of times there's a tendency to like pick out pieces of the Bible and pick out verses and have a whole theology. But if you read the whole thing, I mean, if you could sit down and read Corinthians with the mindset that this is a corrective letter, then your perspective of the whole thing starts to change. This is the longest section dealing with spiritual gifts and the supernatural. It's three corrective chapters. It is probably the most debated chapters in the entire New Testament as he talks about spiritual gifts. And it's important to understand the spiritual gifts were given by God to empower the church for his purpose on this earth. All of these gifts, according to chapter 13, will be done away when he comes here. When he comes back to get us, every spiritual gift that we've been talking about over the last couple of days, or sorry, last couple of Sundays, will be done away with. 
that which is perfect has come, which is Christ, chapter 13, all these other things will cease. Why? Because we won't need them. We'll be, we won't need pastors and preachers and prophets. We won't need supernatural discernment. We'll be in the presence of Jesus. He will be our pastor. Uh, he will be our teacher. He will be, the Holy Spirit will be in such a relevant, powerful way. We'll be able to understand and communicate with God in, in, a, in a way that we never had before. But until then, spiritual gifts are given by God to fill his purposes on this planet. When this life is over, we won't need him anymore. All right? So... Chapter 12, verse 7, he says this, Now to each one, every person has a spiritual gift uh, given to them when it comes to um, uh, motivational gifts. We talked about the difference between motivational gift, manifestational gifts, and um, uh, the supernatural gifts and ministry gifts uh, last couple of weeks. But he says, To each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Now this is important to know. Every spiritual gift, all the miraculous gifts, of chapter 12, 13, and 14, all of them are for the common good. They're for the body. They're not for the individual. None of the spiritual gifts are for an individual. They're for the body. It's important because this is what he hammers over and over and over again about how you've turned something that's for the body into something that's very selfish. And that's very corrective when it comes to chapter 14, which we're going to look at today. He says that's the biggest problem is that you've turned this gift that was meant for the body into something into something for yourself. So it says, for the common good, for to one is given the word of wisdom through the spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same spirit, to another faith by the same spirit, to another gifts of healing by the same spirit, to another the workings of miracle, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. A lot of confusion and division over these passages here. There's four views. These are called the charismata because the word in verse four of this chapter talking about gifts is charismata. And uh, there are Four different views of the charismata, and the four views are this, of the supernatural. There's cessationalists, and they believe that, the, that all these charismatic gifts that were just read uh, ceased or ended with the death of the last apostle. And then there is the charismatic view. The charismatic view is that these gifts are still given and should be pursued or should be sought after and should be uh, normal in a church service. Their emphasis is on charismatic, the charismatic gifts, on personal blessing, and on private revelation. And this is, this is a big part of the charismatic community. And they take their name charismatics from the word charismatic which is spiritual gifts in verse 4. And, and you, you might, another word for charismatic churches is spirit-filled churches, um, which I believe we are spirit-filled, but I don't consider us charismatic. I'll explain that in a minute. Or uh, probably 85% of non-denominational churches are leaning charismatic, all right? But that's one view of the charismatic, and that is not only do they exist, but you should want them, you should desire them, and it's normal to experience them. And then the Pentecostal view is that the gifts are given and that they're necessary and follow every true Christian. So while the uh, charismatics might say that, yes, you can be a Christian and not have them, but if you really want to be varsity, then you need to have them, the Pentecost will say, uh, if you're really a Christian, you'll have them. See, there's a slight difference between the two. They agree on a lot of uh, gift definitions, but how they function is a little bit different. And the Pentecostals, they emphasize speaking in tongues primarily as the evidence, the primary evidence that someone is truly filled with the Spirit, which is given when they're saved. So for them, it is the true sign of someone who's truly born again is speaking in tongues. Now, I got to be honest with you, full disclosure, I got saved in a Pentecostal church, um, Assemblies of God, which is Pentecostal. And I was a minister uh, for over, uh, gosh, um, for over 15 years in uh, charismatic churches and was a pastor on staff in charismatic churches for 10 years. And, and I know that culture, that environment, that background, the theology, I mean, I could... I could argue like I believe it. I know it that much. But as, as I've read the scriptures and I have let the Bible reshape my tradition, I've come to new conclusions on some of these issues. And that's kind of what we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks. What is living way? We're not cessationalists. 
we don't consider ourselves fully blown charismatics and we're not Pentecostals, we are continuationists. Basically, we're like a charismatics with seatbelts on or a more biblical view. This is how we like to balance it. We strive to have a biblical balance. Uh, we believe that the charismatic gifts are given for the ministry of the kingdom to be practiced according to the limits of scripture, according to the guardrails of scripture. Okay, now I want to let you know that this is an open-handed issue. What we're going to talk about today is specifically the last gift that we didn't talk about last week, and that is we're going to talk today about the gifts of tongues, speaking in tongues and interpretation of tongues. And uh, what I'm going to ask you to do is kind of try to remove yourself from the culture that you have with this and try to follow scripture and let the Bible define your perspective, not a tradition or how you grew up. And that is going to be tough because it means that you might have to allow the scripture to correct some ideas. Now, there are people that believe differently on this issue, and maybe you do. And because it's an open-handed issue, we don't have to agree on this. We're not, there are closed-handed issues, the, the divinity of Christ, that Jesus is God in the flesh, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he rose again from the dead, that we are saved by faith, that he's coming back again to receive his own, that we are called to live righteous and holy lives, that there is an eternal uh, destination for those with and without Christ. These are core essentials that we believe, but there are open-handed issues, and this is, this is one of them, okay? So if you don't agree with me, that's cool, but I ask that if you don't agree with me, don't agree because of a biblical reason, not because of an opinion, a culture, or a background, okay? That's all I ask, and, and you do not have to agree with me on this, all right? Some of you are like, because I don't think I'm going to make anybody happy today, all right? <laughs> because the Bible is corrective, okay? And when we actually read the Bible, it changes things. Last week, we did talk about word of wisdom, word of knowledge, faith, healing, miracles, discernment, and prophecy. And we saw the errors of some of these, as well as how they work in the church and the body today. Again, we believe that the gifts are active today according to the limits or the guardrails of Scripture, all right? So these are, I believe, are active today in the definition of what they operated in in the New Testament with those limitations. So let's, I want to review one gift from last week, and that is the gift of discernment. And this is the spirit-led ability to determine a person or if a message or a situation is of God or not. It discerns good and evil truth from a lie. And what I ask you today is to allow the Holy Spirit through the scriptures to test a belief system that you might have or a preconceived idea. Here's what I love about our young adult ministry. They don't have a history in church that, that causes them to come in with a predetermined idea. I'm not combating a tradition that they believe in. They're just kind of like sponges to the word of God. As we get older, we kind of take a position on things. And so sometimes just preaching the word of God can become resistant uh, to people. So um, I love this, this, the heart that our young adults have. And I'm going to ask you to have that same heart today. First John 4 1 says, beloved, do not believe every spirit or every teaching or every person or every, uh, you know, doctrine or every book or every movie or every service or every experience, but test the spirits the people, the theology, the teaching, the experience, the tradition, to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. When it comes to spiritual gifts, I like to say there are four categories. This is not in your notes. There are the fakes, there are the false, there are the feelings, and then, then there are the of faith. So, for example, if they're fake, there are people who are fakes when it comes to the, the charismata. They're fake. They're charlatans. They pack out arenas and they're fakes. They, they do not believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. They do not preach the gospel. And what they are displaying is fake and they have been, they are charlatans and they have been exposed over the years, many of them. And then there is the false. The false are those that, where there appear to be gifts by a sincere person, but they're teaching a false message and they are inspired 
and they don't even realize it, maybe, inspired by demonic notions. False. It's demonically inspired. Uh, it's demonically led. Uh, and th- there are fake, you know, and false spirits all around the world and world's religions and cults, and, and they are demonically inspired. So there's fake, there's false, then there's feelings. There are people that buy into some of the charismata's normalcy, which is not normal, by the way. They're supernatural. They're not natural. They're not normal. They're paranormal. They're like supernatural. But there are people that buy into this experience and they let their experience dictate their opinion because of the feeling. That's that third one. And because they feel it and because they've experienced it, they buy into it as normal. And so they, what they believe may be false because it's not from the Bible, but they believe it's real because their feelings are so strong about it and they've experienced certain things. Remember last week I said that feelings and emotions can be great counterfeits for true spirituality? That's that third category. And then there's the fourth of faith. What that means, it's biblically based. It's within the parameters and the limits of Scripture as the Holy Spirit gives and as Jesus has taught. So what we want to find is what is the of faith opinion. Now, I got to tell you that none of that's in my notes, and I hope I say it just like that in second service because that was pretty good. I may just say, play, it, play that portion back in second service. That was really good. All right, so we're going we're gonna to go where we left off, and that is uh, tongues and interpretation of tongues, all right? Considered the most bizarre of the charismata, uh, this is the definition. The unique supernatural ability to praise God in another language or understand a language unknown to you that you have not learned. By the way, there is interpretation every single time it truly happens. All right, we're going to talk about that. Each time there is an interpretation. Um, Now the question is, are they known languages or are they unknown languages? Is it a known public language that can be confirmed or is it an unknown personal language that is a utterance that is, you know, that is not, you know, of any earthly language? Um, let me just show of hands. How many of you have ever been in an environment where you've experienced uh, what was speaking in tongues? There were what was, you were said was speaking in tongues. Raise your hand, raise your hand. I say, you know what? I've been in that environment. All right, if you haven't been, we're going to do it right now. Those of you that are Pentecostal, just kidding. <laughs> just stand up. <laughs> no, just kidding. All right. Uh, I was going to play a video of, of a bunch of Pentecostal services, but I thought, well, that's not going to be helpful. So, um, and it would take up time, and we got a big passage to read today. So I want you to remember that this is a corrective passage, all right? Um, They are out of order. What they are doing is out of order. The Corinthian church was chasing experiences, specifically tongues, just like their former pagan days. I want you to know that tongues is a phenomenon, I would just say phenomenon, it's a, it's a manifestation, could be of, the, of a false spirit or of the flesh that is common around the globe in world religions and cults. Hinduism, Buddhism, cults like Mormonism, they all claim speaking in tongues. And, and it's, it's across tribal religions and groups, you know. It goes back to some of the oldest religions of the world. There is a, this utterance of supernatural, what they believe is supernatural utterances. And so when the Corinthian church was getting saved, they were actually in Corinth with this worship of many deities where speaking in tongues happened in their pagan temples, and so now they're wanting to bring that same experience of, as if it was just kind of this ecstatic kind of, uh, you know, euphoria into the worship of their gathering, all right? Now keep that in mind. They were bringing in this pagan attitude of this into the church. This entire letter is corrective. Remember the last chapter, chapter 11, he says, I have nothing good to say about your services, So it's important to know that the way Paul talks is very sarcastic and it's, and he, he, he uses like double meanings where he, he says things where he's being rhetorical and he's being sarcastic. So with that in mind, let's read, uh, well, let me define what tongues is. First of all, is a tongues is the word glossa, glossolalia. And that is the word in the Greek that every time you see the word tongues in Acts and in Corinth, it's glossolalia. And what that word means is language. 
It's what it means. That is the translation of the word language. It actually shows up another place in the Bible, and it's there translated as language. It is a language. It is a real language. And always in the Bible, we're going to get to this in a minute, it was always a known language. There's only two books in the entire Bible that mention glossolalia uh, as, a, as a supernatural gift. In the book of Acts, where it's only mentioned specifically three times and implied a total of four times, but three times specifically in a 30-year period, it's only talked about three times in 30 years. And in the book of Acts, it's talked about for three chapters in a harsh, corrective letter, all right? And in none of the other letters that Paul talks about is this ever mentioned. In no other letters is tongues ever brought up in Galatians, in Ephesians, in Romans. Romans is considered the most systematic letter in the entire New Testament that gives the entire story of man, the restoration of God, the the salvation of Christ, the coming of the Holy Spirit, and Romans never even mentions it, okay? So there's there's this thing called languages that is happening and... The Corinthians were experiencing this thing that Paul is saying, guys, get it together. Now, we're going to read chapter 14. And if you've ever read chapter 14, it is the most plain, easy to read chapter, one of the most easiest to read chapters in the Bible, but it's rarely ever read in Pentecostal charismatic services. And you're going to know why as soon as we begin. Here we go. Put modern services to the test with this chapter, okay? If you have a Pentecostal background, uh, charismatic background, read this chapter and let the Holy Spirit speak through the word of God. Verse one, pursue love, desire spiritual gifts. Don't pursue gifts. Don't pursue the supernatural don't pursue it. Now, desire it, meaning want the supernatural, want God's presence, but pursue, chase, make your primary goal love. It's funny, chapter 12 is all about spiritual gifts. Chapter 14 is all about spiritual gifts. The middle chapter, chapter 13, is all about love. That's the love chapter. Love is patient, love is kind, all that. We're going to talk about that next week on Father's Day. But he purposely puts it right in the middle So he begins 14 by saying, don't pursue spiritual gifts, but pursue love, desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Again, we talked last week how these spiritual gifts are not equal. And and when it lists them in chapter 12, the one on the bottom is tongues. And the one on the top, primary, is prophecy. And we also talked about last week, the definition of prophecy in the New Testament is the supernatural ability to proclaim God's word with wisdom, insight, and revelation. It's not a, thus says the Lord. That is, is not what the New Testament picture of prophecy is. It's a supernatural Preaching and proclamation of God's word through revelation that speaks now into people's lives. It's very foretelling, all right? So every time you see the word prophecy in chapter 14, know it's a supernatural proclamation of God's word in a powerful, intelligible way, all right? That, preaching that convicts. Preaching that reveals God's word. Preaching that is powerful, that proclaims without hesitation, without shame, the word of God that reveals God's plan for people. All right? Led of God, supernaturally empowered, that is what prophecy is in the New Testament. There are greater and lesser gifts. The intelligible proclamation of God's word is the primary one to desire. Okay? Verse 2. For he who speaks in tongue, which is ecstatic praise in another language. Remember, remember, glossolalia is praise. It is praising God in another language. We're going to come to that back in a minute. It is not evangelistic, and it is not meant to give a new message. And we're going to get to that in a second, because we're going to take a, like a flyover of Acts of the three times it's mentioned, four times where it's implied. And, and, It is the ecstatic praise of God in another language. He says, for he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. 
for no one understands him. However, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. That means no one knows what he says. Nobody, he doesn't even know what he says. So it's more of a feeling and it's not, it doesn't edify as much as it's more of an experience. Tongues in its proper use is always directed to God. Okay, so uh, we have this idea that tongues is, a, is an evangelistic tool or that it's, you know, designed to, to uh, you know, edify yourself. It, it might give you an experience that makes you feel good, which Paul talks about in a second. But ultimately, it is about praise to God, always praise to God. It testifies through another language that every tribe, every tongue, and every nation is to give glory to God. Tongues is basically supernatural expressive worship. Okay? That's what it is. Great. You're like, hey, that's cool. Great. But listen to what he says. But the one who prophesies, who proclaims God's word, speaks to people for their, for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Tongues does not do strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves. It lifts you up. It makes you feel good. It's an experience. But the one who prophesies edifies the church. Everyone is benefited. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues. Now, if you read this as a, I love you guys, you're doing some great things, then that, pray, then that verse sounds like he's saying, I wish everybody spoke in tongues. But in just chapter 12, he says, not everyone will. Chapter 12, he says, not everyone will, not everyone is going to. And, and when you know the sarcastic nature of what Paul is saying here and how he is talking through the entire letter, he's not saying, I wish, I would like all of you to pray in tongues. He's basically saying, it would be great if you did, but you don't. You know, I wish you all spoke in tongues, but you don't. Because he goes on to say, we know that that's his attitude here because of chapter 12 and chapter 13. Okay, he says, but I would rather you prophesy. It'd be great if everybody just spoke in tongues and all of us could, but we don't. So speak intelligible words. Speak rather prophecy, all right, which is dynamic, revelatory proclamation of God's word. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. Unknown praise, ecstatic praise in another language, all right? So there is a definite order, you know, again, on that list in chapter 12, tongues is on the bottom. But in a lot of churches, Pentecostal charismatic churches, you know what they do? They've elevated it to the top, right? But Paul has said, no, it's on the bottom. And what's on the top, what's greater is, is a dynamic proclamation of God's word revealed. This is unless someone interprets. Why? Because it is understood. Because it authenticates the language as a supernatural event. Unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified or encouraged. Listen, the, this is the big picture. Remember, all spiritual gifts are designed to build up the common good. Right? So if that gift that you are experiencing is not building up the common good, it's out of biblical order. Okay? That's why he says even tongues... If it doesn't edify the body as a whole, then it's out of order, okay? Remember, the purpose of spiritual gifts is to build up. They are not self-serving, okay? Verse 6, now if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge of prophecy or word of instruction? What good is it if you don't understand what I'm saying? Then he gives three fun illustrations. He says, even in the case of lifeless things that, that make sounds such as the pipe or a flute or a harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Now, this is the rudiments of basic music. It is, music is made up of rhythm or syncopation, harmony, and melody. Without those components, it's just noise. Paul says it's like, it's like music. Unless there's, unless there's a distinction in the notes, it's just noise. He says, so is your tongues. Unless there's an understanding, it's just babble. He goes, again, if the trumpet or a bugle does not sound a clear call, 
Who will get ready for battle? The, you know, we didn't have text messages. We didn't have walkie, they didn't have text messages or walkie talkies. They had bugles. And each community or tribe or, or, or a nation had different codes and symbols in their bugles. And so they could, they could have someone in the back, you know, like kind of like, you know, send out messages through bugle calls that would send to the people in the front, go right, go left, charge, stand still, pull back. It was communicating through bugle sounds, distinctive marks of communication. He says, and like a trumpet, if it's not clear, who's going to get ready for battle? What good is it if it's unintelligible? Okay. So it is with you, unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, your language. How will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages. The word there is tongues. There are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. I mean, talking about how every language in this world has a purpose and and meaning. Then... If then, verse 11, if I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I'm a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. Now, I get to go to, uh, to, to mission trips and travel the world, and, and I'll sit in a service uh, when you go overseas where there's not a translator. And, and I'm just sitting there, and I'm like just enjoying the, you know, the environment, but I'm not getting anything out of the message. You know, I mean, I like their enthusiasm, but I don't have a clue as to what they're saying. It's not really edifying or teaching me or encouraging me. I'm just like, hey, man, we're the other Christians. This is cool. And, you know, it's like watching a movie without subtitles. You're like, oh, the scenery's nice. That kind of angle is kind of nice. But, but you don't get it. It's completely without understanding. And he says, this is what it's like if you are speaking in tongues without interpretation. So it is with you, since you are eager for the gifts of the Spirit... Try to strive or excel in those that build up the church. And again, he already told you primarily the intelligible words of encouragement like prophecy. See, they were seeking ecstatic experiences that were not helpful to the body, but were giving them lots of goosebumps for themselves. And it reminded them of their pagan experiences in their former temple churches. Paul says, stop it. This is don't, all right? Verse 13, for this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. So even if you're by yourself and you are overwhelmed with this ecstatic, you know, praise of God in another language, you should have interpretation even if you're by yourself, okay? Know what you are saying. In the Bible, it was never a word for people, but an understanding of the praise. This is important. We're going to look at some examples of it. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. I get nothing out of it. My spirit, meaning not my like, not the spirit of God in me, but my feelings, my emotions, I get like kind of riled up. Yeah, but but it it does not mature me. It does not help me, it does not grow me. He says, so what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit and I will also pray with my understanding. And I will sing with my spirit and I'll also sing with my understanding. If I am praising in tongues, ultimately it doesn't have a lasting effect on me other than having an experience. It's more fruitful to understand and be encouraged and grow. All right. Again, a fruit of the spirit is for the common good, not for self. This is so important how this has been twisted. All right. You guys with me still? All right. Anybody going to throw anything at me yet? Get it ready because you will. Verse 16. Otherwise, when you are praising God in the spirit, how can someone who is now put in the position of an inquirer, that means a guest, someone who's coming into the church, seeing what this whole Jesus thing is about, a seeker or an unbeliever, how can someone else who is put into the position of a guest in a service of yours say amen to your thanksgiving since they do not know what you're saying? You're giving thanks well enough, it feels good to you, but no one else is edified. It helps nobody. It is not beneficial. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Again, this is sarcasm. See, they thought they were super spiritual. Paul's like, man, I'm just saying, I have you beat. 
If you think you're super spiritual because you speak in tongues in service, I speak in tongues more than all of you, all right? This is not an implication that we should all do it because he already said earlier in the letter, not everyone will, and it's not normal for everyone to, all right? So he says, man, I do it all the time. You're not that spiritual. It's basically what he says. But in the church, when you come together as a church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a language or in a tongue. Now, this is significant because this is written in Greek, and in Greek, the word 10,000, that's the highest number in the Greek language. And whenever it is written in a phrase like this, it means infinite. So he's saying, I would rather speak five measly, understandable words that are helpful that mature you than an infinite amount of tongues. All right, this is huge, all right? Five measly intelligible words, then an uncountable number of tongues. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. Verse 20, in regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. He says, babies, you know, they think and they talk nonsense. And they only think of themselves. He says, stop being babies. Don't be babies. Stop talking nonsense. Stop thinking like everything is about you. Stop being babies. Think of others and how they can best hear God. Maturity is not spiritual gifts. Remember chapter three, he says, you guys are babies. You excel in supernatural stuff maybe, but you're babies. And I wish I could talk to you like grown people, but I can't. He said that in chapter three. He says, you're so immature. So when we get to this section It's not like they're super spiritual and we should all follow the Corinthian model. No, we should not follow the Corinthian model. They're not mature. They're very immature. They're a bunch of babies experiencing things out of order. Anybody convicted yet? The next part is vital to why we speak in tongues. 21 and 22 says, In the law it is written, With men and other languages and tongues and other lips... That means different types of people. I will speak to this people. Who's this people? Isaiah is talking about the descendants of Abraham, the Jewish people. He says, so with many different languages and tongues and with many different types of people, I will speak to the descendants of Abraham, the Jewish people. And yet for all of that, they will not hear me. And he says this, he says then, verse 22, tongues then are a sign for believers, uh, are not a sign for believers, but for unbelievers. But you're like, wait a minute, I, I thought he was just saying that it's for believers and not for unbelievers. And now he says it's for unbelievers and not believers. And this has kind of been a a confusing passage for a lot of people. What is he talking about? Well, the answer is in verse 21. Who is the unbeliever that he's talking about. Well, he already told us in verse 21, the unbeliever is the Jewish unbeliever. So tongues then are a sign for Jewish unbelievers, but not for, um, see, are not a sign for believers, but for Jewish unbelievers. See, this is a quote out of Isaiah 28, verse 11 and 12. Tongues are a sign to unbelieving Jews that the Messiah was for the whole world. See, the Jewish people thought the Messiah was just for them and that the promises of Abraham were just for them and that this coming Christ was only for them. They they were convinced of it. And actually, so were the followers of Jesus. That's why for the first nearly, you know, almost a decade of the early church, they didn't even leave Jerusalem. It wasn't until God allowed persecution to happen in Jerusalem that they finally went out and started telling the world All right, so even Jewish Christians thought it was only for them. And by this time, Paul is a a missionary to the Gentiles. And he's saying, listen, the Bible says that these languages were given as a sign, as a, they pointed to the Messiah saying that the Messiah is for everyone, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, it's for the world. But verse, uh, in Isaiah and in that verse 21, it says, but as a whole, it says, they will hear me, uh, and yet for all that, they will not hear me. Meaning, which is exactly what happened. Jesus 
and his disciples who were Jewish people were primarily rejected by Jewish people. So this language gift was not supposed to bring people to salvation. It was to point to the Messiah as someone who is for the world. All right. This is, are you, is your mind getting blown yet by just reading the Bible? All right. See, there's four times where tongues, or actually this event shows up in Acts, three specifically, one implied. And each one of them, it's the exact same event. In Acts chapter 2, which is the day of Pentecost, is the most famous. When that happened, people, a lot of people say, you know, tongues is for evangelism. Uh, show me where in the Bible. In Acts 2, it's not evangelism. It's praising God and there, the city was filled with Jewish people, and there's 15 different people groups that are mentioned in Acts, speaking 15 different languages. And when the Holy Spirit fell on Acts chapter 2, they began to glorify the, the work of Jesus in all these languages, and those that were interpreting were the lost. They understood what the disciples were saying glorifying the works of Jesus. And then in an intelligible word, Peter gets up, preaches the gospel prophetically, and 3,000 people are saved. They were not saved because of tongues. Tongues was a sign to all those Jewish people from around the world at that time, celebrating Jerusalem for Pentecost, that the Messiah was for everybody that the Messiah was for them. And then Peter gets up and gives the message of the Messiah. See, even then, it's beautiful. Acts chapter 2, in all of the Acts experience, each time it was to a new people group. In Acts chapter 2, it was the Jewish people. It was praise in known languages among 15 different nationalities, all Jewish people speaking different languages. Acts chapter 2, praising God over a dozen languages, declaring the wonders of God as praise, glorifying the works of Jesus of God, just praising and shouting his praise. He is risen. He is, he is alive. And, you know, glory be to God, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, Lord of all, the fulfilled, the anointed one. And as people began to hear, they thought they were crazy. And then Peter says, we're not crazy as you think. This Messiah is for you. All right. So in Acts chapter 2, it was a message to Jewish people that the Messiah is for everybody. In Acts chapter 8, there's a new people group that's given the gospel, and it's the Samaritans. God filled them with the Holy Spirit, confirmed that this people group, the Samaritans, rejected by Jewish people, that yes, the Messiah is for the Samaritans. And in Acts chapter 10, where it's mentioned again, many years later, it's a new group of people. It's a Roman Gentile, a Roman soldier specifically. And he is he gives his life to Christ and then is filled with the Holy Spirit, speaks in tongues, confirming that the, that the Messiah is for the Roman Gentiles. And then it happens years later again in Acts chapter 19 in Ephesus where they're Greek Gentiles. And God is confirming once again, yes, the Messiah is even for the Greeks. So it's for the Jewish people. It's for the Samaritans. It's for the uh, Roman Gentiles. And it's for the Greek Gentiles. It is for everyone. It's for everyone. It declared an authentication that the Messiah is for every tribe, every tongue, and every nation to the glory of God. That's it. That's the only references to tongues in Acts. Tongues is a praising of God in another language, a gift that declared salvation has come to the world, to all nations, a sign to the descendants of Abraham that the Messiah was for the world. In Acts 2, it confirmed to the Jewish people the Messiah was for them, all Jewish people. In 8, 10, and 19, Paul took what happened and Peter took what happened and told the council and said, we know it's for them because they spoke in tongues. We know it's for them because the Holy Spirit filled them just like it did with us. Again, confirmation that the Messiah is for the world. You see the picture that we have of tongues in the New Testament. By the way, before 1500, the word was translated language. That's it. And they spoke in other languages. When the Protestant Reformation 
came and there began to be different interpretations and, and translations of the Bible, they began to experiment with the word cloven tongues, which means distributed languages, but cloven tongues, uh, strange tongues, divided tongues, um, even we'll say unknown tongues. That word unknown, cloven, all that kind of is not in the original, but we have it in our translations today because they're implied by a translator that this is what they believe. It's important to know that what we have is reliable, but there's always some subjection to the translation, okay? So that's why you need to compare translation, by the way. All right, you guys still with me? Man, we got a lot to do in five minutes. All right, so here we go. Verse 22, prophecy, intelligible preaching, however, is not for believers. That means Jewish seekers, but for believers, those that believe for growth. So it's like, it seems like he's double talking, but he's saying, hey, listen, the purpose of tongues is to declare to the Jewish people that God is for everybody, all right? So then he says, um, so if the whole world, if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in an unknown praise, a language, tongues, and inquirers, those that are not believers, outsiders, wondering about Jesus or unbelievers come in, they will, uh, not, uh, will they not say that you are out of your mind? This is a crazy place. I used to give a warning to people when I was a, in a charismatic church. I'd invite people to church. I'd say, hey, I just want to give you a heads up. There's going to be some craziness going on. And you know what they left with? This place is crazy, right? So Paul is saying, hey, if, if this is what your services are about, you're going to miss a connection with the gospel of Christ to those that are inquirers or seekers. He goes, but if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, not at the same time, but proclaiming God's word, they are convicted of sin and brought under judgment by all uh, as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare so they will lay, so they will fall down and worship God exclaiming, God is really a you. This does not happen when everybody is speaking in tongues, but when the intelligible, prophetic, revealed word of God is proclaimed and preached. Listen, that's the kind of place you want to be in, where God is alive and working and speaking life through each other, where people are convicted and respond to the revealed gospel. It doesn't matter how experiential it is, you want the latter. Paul says that's what you need to desire. Verse 26, what then shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each of you has a hymn. Somebody will sing uh, or a word of instruction. Someone will give announcements <laughs> or a revelation uh, or, uh, you know, will preach or a tongue or an interpretation. That means a language of declaration of praise and an understanding of that language and interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. Again, the purpose of tongues is for the common good, not for the personal good, okay? Everything must be done in a service to build up the body. Whatever gift God decides to manifest, it's always to build others up, to point to Jesus. Church is not about what you can feel or experience, though you will feel things in church and experience God. Church is about godly encouragement to each other. That person next to you, you might be overwhelmed with the sense that God has a, has a word of knowledge or a discerning word like in the other gifts that's for your neighbor, an intelligible word that God will use you to speak and encourage the person next to you. Maybe out in the hallway as you're talking and sharing, God will use you to encourage one another. And like, yeah, the message was, so, was whatever, but all of a sudden that's the moment. That's the moment that connects is when they're talking to you, all right, in an intelligible word. Okay, if anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak, not at a time. One person is preferred, no more than three, and not at the same time. And someone must interpret. There must always be interpretation because interpretation validates the tongue and causes it to be edifying. 28, if there is an interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. People say, well, I can't help it. Yes, you can if it's the Spirit. Remember, God will never contradict himself. He won't interrupt himself or draw attention away from himself. Control yourself in the spirit. Guess what one of the gifts of the spirit in Galatians 5 is self-control. The spirit will not cause you to lose control. That is not the Holy Spirit. I can't help it. Well, yeah, you can if it's the spirit. All right? Word. All right? Verse 29. Two or three prophets should speak. 
All right, God's revealed word spoken. Not everyone is a prophet. We're not going to line up and everybody give a word today. You know, he says uh, two or three should ever get up and, and preach or give God's word in a particular service uh, at the most. And others should weigh carefully what is said. Test everything. Doesn't matter if it's me or if it's some other guest. Test everything. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, if it needs correcting, the first person should stop. Not talking at the same time again, for you can all prophesy or, or uh, in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. What's that mean? That means those who feel led to speak, that's the spirits of the prophets, are subject to the prophets. That's the leadership of the church. So control the urge. Ask the leadership first because the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. That means you don't just raise your hand and go, I have a word today. You know, if you have a word today, you raise your hand, you find one of our elders, leaders, uh, life team leaders, somebody who's in the, serve, in the church, talk to them about it because the spirit of the prophet is always subject to the prophets, the leaders of the church. It's getting good. Man, when the Bible tells us how things should be done, it shakes and rocks our traditions and cultures, all right? See, he goes on to say, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregation of the Lord's people, all right? Listen, here's the scene in Corinth. They were talking at once, words from God, trying to outdo each other, lots of random languages, no interpretations, just ecstatic outbursts. It was an arrogant circus. Outsiders were confused and weirded out. Paul is saying, this is disgraceful. Get a grip. Verse 34 and 35, we talked about a few weeks ago. This is not about how women cannot minister in church. I'm not even going to read it because we addressed it and it just would be a sidetrack. This is about women. Uh, this is not about women. This is about wives, verse 34 and 35, about wives talking over their husbands, perhaps in tongues. Women prophesied and preached in the church. We know that because chapter 11 says they did. A great woman even planted this church with Paul. Her name is Priscilla. And so this is not a limitation that women cannot talk in the church. This is about order in the church when it comes to husbands and wives. All right? So, but that's a whole other topic. We dealt with that a few weeks ago. So this is where he gets real, and we're finally getting through this whole chapter. Here we go, verse 36. Or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? Man, this is like, this is one of those, Paul responds. He says, you know what? You think you're the only person with the Holy Spirit. You think that, that what you have is, is so much greater than everybody else. It's an elite attitude. And he says, what, you think the Holy Spirit started with you? You think you're the only one that experiences God? Unfortunately, I think the same attitude shows up in a lot of Pentecostal and charismatic churches where they treat people who don't have the culture and experiences that they have as somehow less Christian and they almost have an elite attitude like you're missing out or that you're not more, uh, uh, as much of a Christian as they. This is the issue they were having in Corinth. He says, what, you think it all is about you? You think you're the first place the Holy Spirit fell? I love his attitude here. He goes, if anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, that means if you think you're spiritual and if you're a leader, let them acknowledge what I am writing to you. It is the Lord's command. This is not his opinion. This is the Lord, meaning Jesus Christ, the Messiah's command. But if anyone ignores this, they themselves will be ignored. If you ignore this, you're not to be taken seriously. Okay? So if someone is saying, you know, I don't care what 14 says. I know what I experience. I know what I have and I know what I do. Paul says, listen, if you're going to ignore this, I'm not going to give you an opportunity to ever speak in front of anybody. I'm not going I'm, I'm, I'm to take you seriously and I'm not going to give you a platform. This is hard stuff. This is, this is convicting. He says, I'm not listening to you if you're going to ignore this. Verse 39, therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy, desire to proclaim God's word clearly with, with revelation, and do not forbid or don't ever write off what God can do speaking in tongues, but rather, he says, in everything, he says, everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. Some churches flip this, and they're eager, and they desire, and they pursue tongues, and they're okay with preaching. 
They might have a preacher. They might get overwhelmed by the spirit and have two or three hours of nothing but ecstatic experience and tongues and worship. Man, we've had church today. I think, you know, I think a preaching of God's word would almost ruin this moment. So they, they just will go. I've been in churches. I know because I grew up in that environment. And sometimes they don't even get to preaching. If they do, it's like, it's like almost an apology. Come on, man. Paul says, no, no, you're flipping it. He says, you're flipping it. He says, what you should do, he says, he says, focus on, be eager for, and desire spirit-filled words of edification, preaching, proclamation of God's word that convicts and, and edifies and builds up and allow experiential manifestations like tongues in the right settings and always tested to scripture. So there's a balance of freedom and the spirit and honoring the spirit. The spirit will not make Jesus or his church look foolish, period. All right? That's not what the Spirit does. You can be an expressive person and still have order. There is nothing wrong with order. The Spirit is Spirit-led order. You know, we have an order of service, and we have a time on each one. And we're pretty flexible. It doesn't always meet that time. Like right now, we're not uh, on mark. Uh, but I tell you what, that, that is a Spirit-led order that just kind of gives us a guide. And then the Spirit, we give flexibility with whatever. But we don't, I just, when I started making an order of service, when I was a Pentecostal charismatic person in that ministry, people would be like, how dare you? You put an order on the Spirit of God? You put, you put 20 minutes for worship? How dare you? That's How dare you? You know, it's like, you're not being spirit-led, hey, you know, spirit-led order, all right? Yeah, it's just a number, but, I, you know, we're, if we go over, if we go longer, it's, man, it's all spirit-led, but there's nothing wrong with order because everything must be done in a fitting and orderly way. So what are the guardrails? I'm going to quickly give you the guardrails based on, you're like, what? We're going to do all that in a couple minutes? Yeah, because it's just all fill in the blanks. All right, here we go. Not every Christian will or should speak in tongues. Okay? It is a spiritual gift given to some, 1 Corinthians 12, 30. It is not the mark of a true Christian, period. Real tongues is not as common as you think and are not necessary for churches. They are as God gives and as he wills, not as we demand. We can't control the spirit on the charismata, okay? But yet for many churches, not only emphasize, but you're looked down on if you don't, but it's actually in the bottom of the value list. By the way, if it does, not, if it does happen, it doesn't mean that you're mature. Paul says this in chapter 14 and in chapter 3. Number two, the purpose of tongues in the Bible is to praise God as a sign that the good news is for all people. That's the purpose of tongues in all of Acts and in Corinthians 14, uh, verse 21 and 22, was never to make you feel close to God. That's the purpose of the blood of Christ. We don't have tongues to feel close to Jesus. We have the blood of Jesus, which cleanses us from our sin, which gives us access to the presence and the throne of God through Christ. That is how we know we are close to God. Uh, it was never a prayer language in the Bible, but a sign to unbelieving Jewish people that the Bible, that the Messiah is for all. Biblical tongues always points to Jesus. It's praise to Jesus. Now, I actually know someone in a service where this had happened, and it was a service where there was a non-believing Jewish person. There was a girl who was an exchange student that was visiting in this service, and she was German, and uh, she was an atheist, and she was sitting in service, experiencing the culture, experience of American church, and and. Uh, and this person got up to preach, and they were speaking in, in another language, but in tongues uh, to themselves, and their microphone was on. And just as he got up to preach, this person raised their hand and said, um, this, this, this exchange student girl who's not a Christian, who's an atheist, understood what you just said. And this person goes, well, what did, what did, what did I say? And she says, this, this person said you were sp uh, speaking Yiddish. And this person on the, that was speaking said, I, I've never spoke Yiddish. I, don't, I, I, I couldn't make this up. What did I say? And this person who's an atheist, who's a Jewish atheist said, you said Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive in the church. And this person goes, wow, could I have made that up? She goes, I don't know. I go, and I go, do you think that this was a miracle? I don't know. And then this person goes, would you like to know Jesus? And she said, no. 
So the person who was speaking said, all right, well, let's just pray and continue on with the message. And I know that happened because you know who that was? That was me. I was that preacher and I was in that service and I was the one who was speaking in tongues when it was defined. Okay. It is a biblical thing in God's order and plan as a testimony assigned to the Messiah to unbelieving Jews. All right. But it has been redefined. It's been redefined. So I'm going to give you a how did, how did we get to the point where, it's where, where it is today? Look at this real quick. I'm gonna, this, is, this is something I was thinking about not putting, uh, but I want you to follow this. Tongues occasionally appeared throughout history as another language. In 1901, there's a guy named Charles F. Parham, who is a holiness movement preacher. Bethel Bible School in Topeka, Kansas, believed that God directly talked to him and that the end of the world was coming and that God was restoring a supernatural tongues experience in order to preach the gospel in the end of the world. He also denied hell. He also believed that white people were the descendants of true Israel. And he uh, was a, a, an extreme racist, which we'll get to in a second. Um, a student of his named Agnes Osman was the first person in his church to speak in a quote unquote tongue. She spoke for several days in what they said was Chinese and she wrote it down. Says, I'm writing tongues. That's what she wrote down. Does that look like Chinese? It was not Chinese, and it was later verified that all of the languages they were speaking were not other languages. In fact, they began to commission people and send them around the world in this tongue language, only to find out that when they got there, it was no language at all, and they were fruitless and all returned home. In 1905, Parham moved to Texas, just outside San Antonio, by the way, and he began a school for tongues, for mission work. Again, all these languages verified, not true languages. Parham, a KKK supporter, segregated his black students, and there was a young black man named William J. Seymour who had to sit outside while Parham spoke, but he believed this message of tongues, and he was ostracized from the church, moved to California, started a church on a street called Azusa Street, and he started a church called Apostolic Faith Gospel Mission on Azusa Street. And he began to preach that God was bringing in a new tongue, one that had never been given before, that was an angelic language. He was the one and ones around his time that first introduced the new utterance experience. Before then, he had never even believed it was always a known tongue. So he actually started a movement. Thousands of people traveled to Azusa Street in LA, California, and the Pentecostal movement was birthed. And what we have today, it, every Pentecostal charismatic points back to the Azusa Street Revival, where this new theology began. Seymour believed that the end of the world was coming in his lifetime, and this was a last day's experience to prove who the true Christians were. And that has stuck, and that's still being taught today. Since it was proven that they were not languages, it was redefined. And to this day, it's redefined, even though there's no biblical reference, no biblical example in Acts or Corinthians that it was an unknown mystery language. Three, tongues in the Bible was always a known language. Verse 13, where it says, uh, chapter 13, I don't care if you speak in tongues of angels. It's like you saying, look, I don't care if you speak Vulcan. I don't care if you speak Elfin. I don't care if you speak angels. It's the only time that phrase is ever used. He's basically saying, it doesn't matter what you think you have. If you don't have love, you're nothing. That's all of chapter 13. Number four, if it happens, only one is preferred, no more than three. Number five, if it happens, there's only to be one person at a time, no more than one person at a time. Number six, if it happens, there's always to be an interpretation. If these are not followed, it is not the gift of tongues from the Bible. It is not the gift of tongues of Corinthians or in Acts. Number seven, in a church gathering, if a guest or an unbeliever is present, be careful. Uh, originally, I had don't, because Paul says they're all going to think you're crazy, speak an intelligible word, but, but I just... I would say just be careful because by itself it does not edify anybody and it can only bring confusion. Any confusion or disorder in a service is an indication that something is not from God, period. If, it, if the church is going crazy, and you, it's not God. It's a sign that it's not from God. And if they ignore this instruction, Paul says don't give them a platform. Number, five, number eight, don't seek it, but don't oppose it. All right, we're not to forbid the proper and authentic gift of tongues. We are not to limit God and his power and his ability. Paul is not discouraging tongues. 
There are times when God will use it to accomplish his will, but it must be within the scriptural guidelines. All right? We often see it redefined today to meet experience and culture. All right? And uh, I'm going to skip this next part. And then I want to end with two thoughts and we're going to pray. Is this. And the, if the ushers want to get ready, because we're going to, I'm going to give these two thoughts and we're going to do this thing. All right? Um, is this. The Holy Spirit is active in the, in, in the people of God today. All right? The Holy Spirit is given to believers to give us a mark, to teach us, to convict us, to remind us, to sanctify and empower us for God's glory, for his purpose on this earth. Don't ignore the work of the Holy Spirit in you and in us simply because it's abused in other circles. The Holy Spirit desires to work in our life through the supernatural, through spiritual gifts. Don't write off what the Holy Spirit wants to do in the people of God. And number two, God is relational. He is emotional. He is experiential. But it all must be tested always to the scripture because our experiences can counterfeit true spirituality. So always test. God wants us to feel him, sense him, experience him. There is a reason why the charismatic and Pentecostal movements are the fastest movements in the world. You know why? Because the world is sick and tired of cold, dead religion. And they invite people into an experience. And it's very powerful to have an experience. God wants us to experience him. But it must be tested to scripture. All right? So many Christians function as deists. God's up there somewhere, not here. We can't interact with him. He's gone and he's coming back later. No, he wants to interact with us. He wants to pour out his spirit on us. He wants to move in us. All right? So let's do this according to the Bible. And watch the glory of God shine brighter than we ever imagined. All right? Where God is speaking, convicting, and changing hearts. Amen. All right, I'm going to have the ushers come forward. I'm going to ask you, if you have any questions on this today, then uh, text me. That'd be great. Ushers, go ahead. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to give today and to be a blessing. And Lord, I just pray that you would meet the needs of our church as we seek to, to know your will and to grow and to reach our community and to make a difference in this world. Uh, Lord, through the power of the Holy Spirit. God, thank you for Pentecost. It empowered us, God, uh, to tell the world. And God, I just uh, pray that you just um, fill those buckets, Lord. God, you know what we need of in Jesus' name. All right, if you... Are, are struggling with this today, read your Bible, okay? Just read your Bible and let the word of God speak. Try to avoid systematic piecing together of verses that create new, new doctrine, okay? Because the Bible was not written in pieces. It was written in letters. It's a love letter from a father to his kids, inspired by the Holy Spirit through people. Okay, and so uh, if you if you don't agree, that's fine. The, this is an open-handed issue. Just have a biblical reason. It'll just make you healthier as a Christian. Okay, everybody love me. All right, you love Jesus more. I do too. <laughs> Father, thank you. You're so good to us. God, I pray that we would leave here challenged and refreshed and empowered by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, Amen. Jesus is the living way. I love you guys. Thank you for listening to the Living Way Church podcast. If you enjoyed this message, we hope you come visit us in Garland, Texas. For directions and more information about the church, go to www.livingwaychurch.cc.